Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to know you, that we can come to be in relationship with you, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and we do this through your Son and through your word. We thank you for who you are. You are a constant God who keeps his promises. So the truth that we see in today's passage is as true now as it was in the days of Isaiah. Pray that we'll humbly submit to your word now. We pray that it won't just be an intellectual exercise, it won't just satisfy our minds, but it will move our hearts, it will, it will redefine our affections as we're moved by the truth of your word. Amen. Amen. In 1944, the family of a guy called Robert Key received a letter and it was signed by his majesty. Their brother, who had valiantly fought through Dunkirk, had died in France. But the letter got slightly worse because of these two words. The service record said he died showing off. His cause of death on the inquiry blamed foolish behaviour. To the shame of his family, all the evidence showed that he died for nothing. It was a pointless death. When we look at today's passage, we're forced to look at the cross and we're compelled to ask similar questions. Was this anything more than just a tragic waste? Is there any point to the cross? Does the servant that we see here today die for nothing? Now, Isaiah 52 and 53 is a song or a poem made up of five verses. And that's how we're going to break it up today. We're going to keep it like that. And like any song, it kind of has dark and light moments. It ebbs and flows. But it has one theme, one melody line that runs through it. And that is Jesus Christ at the cross. So where we are in Isaiah, he's in full flow of this, this section called the servant song. And this is the one you've been waiting for. If you were kind of doing an Isaiah's greatest hits, this would be the crowd pleaser of the gig. This is the one you'd want. Because it's a real crescendo. He's been building two images up. The first image is the one of the Lord returning in power. He's telling Israel that the arm of the Lord, we see that appear a few times. That means, or that is to say, the power and the presence of God himself. That is going to be at work saving his people despite their wickedness. The other image is that of the servant. And at times this is meant Israel, but now it is clear that it is a person it is pointing towards the Christ. So that's why it's a crescendo, because in these five short verses of a song, both these images come together. The servant meets the Lord of all, and they do this in the person and the work of Jesus. In many ways, this is the text that the New Testament guys used to explain Jesus, Jesus and his work. If we think to Acts 8, when Philip meets the Ethiopian... He opens up this very passage, and what does he do? It says in uh, Acts 8.35, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. If we think back to John 10, which we saw in home groups a few weeks ago, Jesus picks up on some of these themes himself. Why is Jesus the good shepherd? Because as we see here and we see there, he lays down his life for the sheep. And in Mark 10, 45, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what he's doing, his whole purpose, what he's come to do, he echoes what we see here. Jesus is giving up his life as a ransom for many. Now, it, it may seem really strange that we look back at a text way before, 700 years before the New Testament. But if anything, that makes it more amazing. It, it's not just a revelation. It's not just uh, Isaiah being given a clue about the future. But because it's so much further behind, because it's centuries before the cross, it's a validation of this truth. It shows that everything that is going to happen is because it's in God's sovereign plan, because the arm of the Lord is making this happen. So let's look at the song. How does it open? The first verse opens 52, uh, 13 to 15. 
And, and then this is all about the servant, the servant being exalted in his suffering. Now, if I was going to write this song, I think it's a bit of a shocking opening. It's, it's a bit more kind of Leonard Cohen or Radiohead than it is Gary Barlow. It's not the light-hearted opening I'd have begun a song with. But I think it's shocking primarily for two reasons. Firstly, there's the brutal imagery, which, which is really apparent when just, just uh, like a cursory glance at the text. But the second reason is because in many ways, it grates against everything we would expect. In verses 13 to 15, we see suffering and glory, but they're together and they're both on an unimaginable scale. So the, the way it opens here, it ties it in with the last few chapters. So we had before as a servant who fulfills the action of the Lord, that is, he is to be raised and lifted up. The language Isaiah uses would be familiar to, to the Israelites in the Old Testament. They, they'd known this means that the servant is going to be exalted. But I think from our New Testament perspective, having the great privilege of knowing who Jesus is, this takes on an even more incredible uh, kind of allusion to it. It's pointing beyond just, just the praise that they assume, but it's hard not to think of Christ's resurrection ascension. His heavenly exaltation at the right hand of the Father. And when you really put this in mind, when you're picturing that, verse 14 seems all the more shocking. How can this be the same man? How can this be the one, the exalted one? This man, the one who is exalted, is appalling. The word used is seen earlier in Isaiah where the prophet speaks of the utter devastation of cities. Jesus, the servant, is disfigured. That is, he is mentally and physically ravaged. Beyond any man, it says in verse 14, not just in the sense that no other man has ever been as damaged as this, though in a sense no one has, but more because he's actually unrecognisable as a man. How can this be the exalted one? We see in Jesus God reduced to, to a mere man, and, and for many that's offensive enough, but to look at this, to be ruined so he doesn't even resemble a man anymore. You've got the creator God made into a creature and then completely uncreated. But it's not without any purpose. If we look down at verse 15, the Lord appears to be given Isaiah just, just kind of a sneak peek at what's going to happen. We see the language of sprinkling, if you notice there. The sprinkling is what will make the kings shut their mouths. The language of sprinkling is that of atonement, that of cleansing and making right. The sprinkling of blood is how God's people have been taught to deal with their sin. That's how the priest would take the offering before God. It would clean them. But who's the cleansing for? The cleansing here is for the nations. 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. So even though this opening verse is dark and it's sad, there is a glimmer of hope. And our next verse in our song, it doesn't really get any lighter. But... Look how we see the servant now. The servant that is the Lord Jesus Christ in our next verse is despised. Verses 1 to 3, the servant is despised. Even before being beaten to a pulp, Jesus was desperately unimpressive. Again, it seems when you go through this, how can this be God? It just, it's hard to make any sense of it that the creator God could be the same person in these verses. It's not the Jesus we imagine. I don't think this is what Israel would have expected. God's people have been waiting for centuries for Messiah. The, the truth of the Lord been pointing towards an anointed one. And they'd be given types of Messiahs, other anointed people. They'd have prophets and priests and kings. But this one would be greater. 
And here Isaiah is saying, also he's going to be very different. So you pick two examples. You take David and Moses. Probably the, the kind of the poster boys of, of Old Testament Israel. The kind of the king and the prophet. Both of them strong, impressive leaders. In fact, both are described as quite good-looking, physically impressive guys. They both explode into the narrative of the Bible. So what do you think Israel was expecting its saviour to be like? And we very quickly judge here with the benefit of hindsight, but what would we want? If we were hated and oppressed people, what sort of saviour do you think we would demand? What would we think we deserved? But wonderfully, we don't get what we want in Christ. Look at what we do, do in, what we do get in verse 2. Not one who explodes onto the scene, but it says he grew up like a tender root. We get a root, a tender shoot. This is not an image of beauty, but a picture of weakness. It's the absolute opposite of impressiveness. No wonder the first century tombs on the road mockingly bear a donkey on a cross. Because if you don't understand it, this saviour would just appear an utterly pathetic hero. And because of this, verse 3, he's viewed as nothing. The servant is utterly despised. Uh, in home groups, we saw this at the beginning of John. Uh, it seems a few months ago now, when it said uh, in John 1, 10 to 11, he, that, that is Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, for us, as heartbreaking as these lines seem, there is definitely something encouraging here. There's, there's a kind of, if it was a song, there's a few kind of little cheeky major chords that sneak in because God's plan was always to use what appeared to be very ordinary. Now, I think particularly when you come to a passage like this and you know you've got to preach on it, it really reinforces how utterly ordinary you can feel. Well, at least for me it did this week. And when we read on, we see that the Father's work was accomplished through the obedient work of one that appears nothing. In fact, through one that appears to, to have, have no regard, we come to the crowning moment of all history. And that takes us into the third verse. And, and now we're getting a bit of a momentum. It's, kind of, it's almost like maybe a little key change from here for Isaiah. Because the, the next verse, it all becomes a bit more clear. It's like a double chorus, so we're reinforcing the point of what's going on. This amazing middle section begins with verses 4 to 6 of chapter 53, where we see the servant as a substitute. That's what makes sense of everything. The servant is a substitute. That is the central truth of our relationship with God. Look down at uh, 53 verses 4 to 6. Us stuck out loads for me when I was looking at this. Notice it's our infirmities. It's our transgressions. Now look at what he does to the servant, Jesus. He takes up our infirmities. He does it. It's emphatic. It's, it's him alone. He's the one that carries our sorrows upon himself. He lifts them onto him. He was crushed, verse 5. Not us. We weren't crushed. He was. He was pulverised. Crushed utterly to the point of death. And what for? Not just to remove the negative. Not just to, to kind of take away the bad stuff and leave us neutral. It's so much more than that. If you read through it, the servant takes the punishment to bring us peace. It's to heal our wounds. The end of verse 5, it's a complete work. It's a massive polar shift from what we were to what we are now. Through his wounds, Jesus deals with my sin, my alienation from God, my personhood. It's all fixed in this act of love. We're shown here as stupid sheep. 
verse 6. Like, sheep are ridiculous. They're not only ugly, but stupid and they smell. So there's nothing down for being a sheep here. And it says we all, that's all of us. It's not saying some of you are sheep, everyone, corporately. Because Jesus' work is to save many, but also wonderfully. It says each, each of us, because this work is done personally for me and for you, specifically for us as individuals. Jesus was thinking of us when he did this work at the cross. That, that almost feels like a sermon in and of itself. That's kind of those mind-blowing moments. It says the Lord laid it on the servant, verse 6. This is the Lord's will, so it has to happen. This happens as God punishes Jesus, and as opposed to the bystander, it must appear like verse 4. You can imagine just standing back and saying, well, I suppose he must have deserved it. But the evidence of the Gospels, the true historical accounts of Jesus' life, show that this is definitely not the case. No, verse 5, it was ours. It was in our place. This is why it happened. Not just because of us, merely as some kind of consequence or kind of cosmic mix-up. Or Jesus kind of sympathising with us. It's not even with us. It's not Jesus being a great example to show us how we are to be. But it's for us. It's in our place. That's the central point here. He, the servant, Jesus, suffers in our place. And we're showing how he faces this suffering. As we move down, the mood and the tempo change once more in this song. Verses 7 to 9, it drops a bit, it goes a bit quieter because the servant is silent. He suffers and he serves and it's in complete silent submission. 53 verses 7 to 9. Look how he approaches his work. It, see, it seems almost unbelievable that the servant, who's going to be the ultimate judge over all, Tolerates the greatest injustice of all history. But he tolerates it willingly. Jesus understands, he knows the depth of the task. He understands perfectly what he must endure. But chooses to do this for a rebellious people. He chooses to do it for sinners like us. Isaiah again uses a similar image as he did before. If you look down, he uses sheep again. But here it's a completely different manner. When we were sheep, we were the kind of, the, the stupid aspect of sheep. The pitiful creatures... But here it's a solemn picture. It's a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of willful submission. And when you, when you read it, you start to kind of get a feeling that the Lord is showing Isaiah the breaking point of the Old Testament system. He's kind of giving him a, a kind of sneak peek of what the whole of the, the Bible has been pointing towards, the true sacrifice. Because our sin is our willful, chosen rebellion, as much as the Old Testament animals, well, I suppose they didn't deserve the judgment, but they never chose it. The sheep or the lamb or the goat, they never sorted out. They never chose willingly to go in the place of the believer. So to truly deal with this issue, with this, this issue of sin once and for all. The Lord's saying that we needed one that would knowingly be made nothing. Hebrews 10, 4-7 said, The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But here we see that Jesus can. By willingly going to the cross. The servant chooses to be cut off and taken away. And in verse 8, he chooses to be cut off and taken away and to have no descendants. No one can speak of his descendants. In that culture, that would have been a mark of an utterly futile existence. Yet that is what the servant chooses. And as it goes on, we see again another almost unbelievable choice he makes for us. That the most gentle is to be buried amongst the most wicked. 
But again, he chooses to do this willingly because he loves us. I found, um, you know when you kind of randomly go around London and you find places you've never seen before? A few weeks ago I found another park called Postman's Park. And in Postman's Park, um, there's this thing called the Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice, which I kind of would like to end up on in some way. <laughs> but, yeah. um, it's people who died saving others. And it is quite moving. I, I was sitting, I was reading a few of them. You can, if you Google it, you can get a picture of all the different plaques. And even reading them, is quite a, it's quite an emotive thing to do. The first plaque was a guy called Thomas Griffin, uh, and he died in Battersea. There used to be a sugar refinery there, it was on fire. And the words that he said, in the biggest letters, say, he died to save his mate. And, and it tells you a bit more underneath. It said, it was on fire, and he ran in repeatedly until he pulled his friend out, and he died in the street from the burns. Now, no one would ever question the love carved into every one of those plaques. But in a sense, the greatest thing I could ever do is die for you. But all I would be doing is choosing when to die or maybe why. Jesus here, if Jesus is God and he's chosen to die, he's chosen mortality. He's chosen to die at all, full stop. And, and that kind of, that for me, I'd never realised that until I read it in this passage. I'd never realised how much greater Jesus' sacrifice is than anyone else ever giving their life. Most people only choose when to die. Jesus chose to die, full stop. He didn't ever need to face death. And, and thinking about it, that's the only way he could die. Nails couldn't have restrained the hands that cradled the universe. Only Jesus' will, his outpouring of love, that is the only thing that could held the creator and sustainer of everything to a cross. So the bigger question is, why did he do this? Well, it seems clear that he willingly does this to save us, verses 10 to 12. It's kind of the, the outro movement of the song. Verses 10 to 12, we see that the servant is our saviour. And we're led to the idea of what theologians call penal substitution. It's kind of a, a substitute idea. A great swap is maybe a nice way of thinking about it. In a sense, we've already seen this. If you look at verse 5, we saw the cost. We saw what Jesus died for. You call that the penal side. In verse 4, we saw it was in the place of others. That would be the substitute side, swapping at a price. But here in verses 10 to 12, it's all brought together even more clearly. We see so blatantly that it is in our place. Isaiah is unwilling to let us miss this point. Verse 10, it's kind of bookended by the will of the Lord. Isaiah is making sure you understand that it was because of God, it was by God that he was stricken, verse 8. But it was by God for us. The image that we see in verse 10 is that of the guilt offering. And in the Old Testament mind, this would have resonated really loudly with them because this is the sacrifice that pays the price for the deliberate choice to disobey God. The deliberate choice to disregard God's rule and God as our king. And it's by Jesus being this sacrifice that brings us from being the lost sheep we saw in verse 6 to being his offspring, to being his children in verse 10. We're brought in as children of the Most High God. What an amazing change that is from what we were at the beginning of the passage to what we are now. Now, it's been said in this passage several times. People would, would throw a claim of it that it's some sort of cosmic child abuse. And in a sense, you can, you've got to say, yes, it is God's will to punish his son. But it's not just tolerated by the son. It's not just some sort of blind obedience. But it's conceived in the son. It's worked through his deliberate, willing acceptance of his role. The son chooses this. He chooses aided by the spirit to be removed from his father. And they'd appointed this together. The father and the son are completely together with their intentions at the cross. 
to continue the music illustration, I suppose, they have different roles. We could think of them as kind of working in harmony rather than in unison, not just doing the same thing. But there's no discordance here. They're completely united in this act. So we see verse 10, that God crushes the sun instead of us. I'll crush him and cause him to suffer. And again, I know that some of us aren't going to like this. There's this part of us that feels slightly uncomfortable with this idea. Because God isn't, well, he's loving, isn't he? He's not wrathful. He's not just about punishing. The God we want is just kind of, just, just a big bundle of love. But we've already seen in Isaiah 40 that God is just. We saw this a few weeks ago. And the requirements of that is that it is punishing what is wrong. But here I think we see something else. I think we need to see that by doing this here, He's not just just, but he's, he's utterly loving. Our God, the God of the Bible, shows his love on the cross, bearing the sin of many, verse 13. If there's no justice, then, then the cross is just a picture. I suppose it's just another moral example. It's, an, it's another thing for me to try and live up to that will ultimately beat me down. But if God pours out his wrath on the cross for us, he pours it out in outrageous love. In our efforts to try and get rid of sin and punishment, in an idea that will make God more loving, we're actually making him a lot less loving. Because a God who doesn't punish sin at the cross does nothing for us. The God of the Bible is personal. He goes to the cross for me. He goes to the cross for you. He goes to the cross for sinners. And if the cross isn't for me, then I've completely misunderstood how much God loves me. The question isn't, that is not, that's not the problem. The, the big problem should be Why? Why, why would God do that for me? If he knows me better than I know myself, if he knows how undeserving I am, why would he do it? We see some clues to this in verse 10 still. This outrageous act of love was to satisfy and bring glory to the Father. By doing this, it, it, the Father is glorified. Man in Genesis we see as the pinnacle of God's creation. Man, because of the cross, becomes the crowning glory of God's new creation. And it's all because of how he saves, because he saves by substitution. Now, John Stott, uh, who was, who was in, in the city, he said that this idea of substitution is the key to the whole Bible. If you want to understand the Bible, understand what substitution means. He said that sin is us substituting God for ourselves, but the cross is God substituting Jesus for us. So look at the servant. If this is a substitution, look at the equation. What does he do? Verses 10 to 12. Notice all about his life or soul. It's kind of the same word. It's his life that is made into the guilt offering for us. He doesn't just bring it. He doesn't just carry it like the Old Testament priests. But he becomes it. He does it himself. And he suffers, verse 11, at his very soul. And he bears the iniquities of many. Finally, verse 12. He pours out his life. Every last drop of his life, he pours it out unto death. Jesus at the cross, he loses everything. He loses his power because he was the one who ruled over the universe. He loses his father who he'd been with from eternity. And he gives it all up for what? He gives it for us. It seems outrageous that he would value us above all of this. Uh, If I can return to to the story that I gave you at the beginning. The family of Robert Key. They actually receive a second letter uh, about, about 65 years later. And it was an invitation from the Lord Mayor of Anazin, which is the town where he died. The family had never really spoken of Robert because it was pretty shameful that they kind of took all the evidence of him away in a cupboard and didn't think about him much anymore. Some of the grandchildren didn't even know who he was. 
But the people of this town, or so the letter said, never forgot him. They remembered him every year. In fact, the town, it was an invitation saying, we're going to name a road after your Robert. Would you like to come and unveil it? So they were understandably fairly confused until they discovered the truth of his death. They received a letter from the mayor and it said this. On September 4th, 1944, Robert spotted a group of 20 children crowded around a grenade in a farmer's field. He saw a child playing with it, so he rushed over and grabbed the grenade, tucking it inside his jacket and attempting to run away as fast as he could. As he dashed away from the group, it exploded. Robert, aged 31, died instantly. They now had the truth of his death. It had meaning. It changed everything. From shame and silence, his family were moved to tears of joy, understanding this outrageous act of sacrificial love. And now they celebrate it. Now every year, apparently, that family go over and they celebrate with the people of Anderson. If we're a Christian here today, we should never tire of looking at the cross. It should satisfy everything about us. We should want to celebrate it. It should stimulate our hearts and our minds as we look at this outrageous act of sacrificial love. Uh, I saw it in an art textbook recently. It said that the Sistine Chapel, that no man could ever tire of it because its detail is only surpassed by its scale. That seems more so true of the cross. An act of cosmic repercussions. Yet Jesus does this with the intention of personally saving us. As Christians, we should be awestruck by the cross. How could someone who knows exactly how unlovable I am love me this much? We should be returning to the cross all the time as we continue to explore our relationship with our Saviour. But but this, this strange passage that occurs 700 years before Jesus should also speak to us if, if we're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then I, I would love to say to you, just have a look at the cross. Look at the evidence. Look at the world around us and compare it to what the cross offers. If this is all true, and Jesus died for me, then it can only be because he loves me more than, ev- more than I can ever imagine. And because he wants to be in personal relationship with me. Our God is a personal God. He's not a distant God. And the evidence is here. You can investigate it for yourself. We've got all our our guest events coming up. We've got all our Passion for Life events. Speak to your friends who brought you. But you've just left with, with a couple of big questions. Is this just a tragic, pitiful waste? Or outlined here, do we see the most meaningful, the most loving and the most undeserved offer that we could ever receive? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you you took the cross on for sinners like us. And we thank you that because of the cross, we can be free from the penalty and the punishment and the guilt of sin. We thank you that you did this despite knowing us, despite knowing how unlovable we are. We ask that for those of us who, who call ourselves Christians, we ask that the truth of the cross would be contagious joy to us, that, that we would be desperate to share it with those that we love. We pray that you'd really give us a, a heart to talk about the cross, that would be stirred and excited by it. And for those people who don't, who, who wouldn't say they are in relationship with you, we just pray that, that you would do work in their hearts and that they would feel confident that they could explore the evidence for themselves. Thank you for this time we've been able to sit in your word. Thank you for the great privilege that it is. And we pray that you'll protect us and guard us during this coming week. Amen.
Matthew James. Our last thing then is a way, I suppose, of responding to what James